We're going to look at three verses from our New Testament reading. And what I hope to show you is the way that Paul connects the truth of what God has done for humankind in in Jesus Christ with a transformative gut-level feeling. If you do not have the bulletin out, I encourage you to do so, or open up another tab on your browser or open your phone to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 4 and 5 as we begin. This is, in many ways, a summary of what Christmas is all about. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. You can break down those verses into four parts. Number one, we have an agent, a savior. God sent his son. Two, where did God send his son? Into the world. Three, for what purpose? God sent his son into the world to redeem those who are in the world. And then four, ultimate outcome that we might receive adoption to sonship. What does that final phrase mean, adoption to sonship? For Paul's readers, they would have had a very particular idea of what adoption entailed. And it differs from our practice of adoption in that it was primarily economic, less about feelings and more about legacy. In the Roman world of Paul's day, Uh, imagine an elderly person who is getting up in years and does not have an heir. That person would choose an adult male and adopt them into his family so that the person's name and legacy and fortune could continue. And when that process was complete, the adoptee awoke in an entirely different world. Whatever debts he had coming into the family were now canceled. And the the wealth, the property, the name of his adopted family was instantaneously and irrevocably his. All the family's wealth and status were promised to him. And in that metaphor, Paul gives us one of the most magnificent things about what it means to be a Christian. Becoming a Christian is more than just the removal of bad things. It's more than pardon or the breaking of the enemy's power over us. It is that, but there's also an entirely positive dimension to our identity in Christ. We're not just pardoned, we're adopted. And what's truly shocking about what Paul says here is that men and women are adopted to sonship. Why is that shocking? Well, because adoption to sonship in the Roman world, as you might have guessed, was exclusively the prerogative of men. Women couldn't be adopted into a family in that way. And Paul says, in the eyes of the only person in the universe that matters, women and men stand on equal ground. 
They, will, they are equal inheritors of God's promises. They can lay equal claim to God's protection and provision and love and care. In Christ, there is no male or female, Paul says, also in Galatians. God sent Jesus into the world to redeem us so that you and me would have the full rights of the children of God. Merry Christmas. Now, my sermon is not done. It's just beginning. Look with me at verse 6, because of what I want you to notice is that there is another sending that parallels the sending of the Son. Because we are sons, Paul says, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. That fourfold structure I mentioned earlier, it's repeated here. We have an agent, the Spirit, not the Son. That agent goes somewhere, not into the world, but in our hearts. And his purpose, the Spirit's purpose, is not to redeem us, but to call out. And the intended outcome is not a change in status, like what Jesus did, the intended outcome of the Spirit's sending into our hearts is that we would know God as Abba, Father. We would know God as Abba, Father. But there is a parallel. Do you see that? So what I want to do is look at that that second promise, the promise of the Spirit being sent into our hearts. And I want to ask three questions about it. First, what is being promised here? Second, what is it like? And then third, how can you get it? What is being promised? What is it like? How can you get it? Well, what is being promised, my first point, in a word is this. It's an experience. What is being promised in this passage from the Bible is an emotional experience that is generated by the Spirit of God. What Jesus does for you, what Jesus did for you, and his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave is outside of you. It's objective. When you become a child of God, you are one whether you feel like it or not. And that is good news. But there's another dimension to God's work in your life. What Jesus does is outside of you. What the Spirit does is inside of you. Jesus changes your status whether you feel like it or not. The Spirit underscores and makes possible for the human person to know in their soul that what Jesus has done for them is true. One way to get at this difference between what I'm describing here is is the difference between claiming something and experiencing something. Now, claim is a loaded word in our evangelical subculture. And that is because name it and claim it sends shivers down our spine, and perhaps for good reason. But we don't want to miss that Paul gives us practical Christian advice that you could put under the banner of claiming. So for example, in Romans 6, Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul's doing there is saying, in effect, when you are being tempted to fall into sinful patterns, thought, behavior, action, whatever, when you feel yourself being drawn into a manner of life that's inconsistent with your identity in Christ, 
Do you know what you need to do? You need to consider. You need to reckon. You need to bring to mind the truths of the gospel and who you are in Christ. You need to claim your prerogative as a child of God and resist temptation. That is a a necessary skill for our life in Christ, claiming. But there's a difference between claiming and experiencing because what Paul is promising in Galatians 4 is that there are times when we don't need to claim our identity in Christ. There are times when our hearts surge with emotion, when our heart screams, yes, I am a beloved child of God. The family fortune is mine. I am secure. We don't have to convince ourselves. We don't need to claim it. We are experiencing it. And what I want to say, and this is really the rub of my first point, is that this experience is absolutely necessary. Doctrine is not enough. Simply affirming or even conceptually understanding the truth is not enough. My contention is that many of us live our Christian lives like the prodigal son. You know that story. The son squanders his inheritance that he requested early, which was an affront. And he comes to his senses. He hits rot bottom. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back home and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me like a hired hand. And this is a reasonable plan, right? He made a mistake, and he wants to earn his way back into his father's favor. We're told that on the son's way home, the father sees him from afar, runs to him, embraces him to show his love and care. But the first words out of the son's mouth were still, Father, I have sinned. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. In other words, Father, why this extravagant demonstration of love? I haven't done anything yet. At this point, I'm more comfortable with a boss-employee type of relationship. I want to work to be reinstated into your favor. Now, of course, none of us actually think that or vocalize those ideas. But in practice, my contention is that even though we've been adopted and we've been saved by grace, that truth does not govern our hearts. It doesn't register in our emotional experience. And the reason why I know this is because if you're anything like me, you can be extremely sensitive to criticism. One uh, ambivalently worded email can throw off your entire day. One negative piece of feedback from a mentor or boss will completely torpedo your sense of what you're good at and who you are. Or maybe if it's not that, it's the constant comparison we do. We look at other people's lives and wonder why they are so much more successful and happy than we are. If, you, if those two things, that sensitivity to criticism or that tendency to compare and self-incriminate, If that's true of you to any degree, I want to suggest that is because you may know the truth of the gospel. You may be able to say the right thing about how God relates to you on the basis of grace, not judgment. But in practice, you are acting as if you're acting like a hired hand. 
And if all we had was what Jesus had done for us on the outside, that would not be enough to change our hearts. We need the work of the Spirit on the inside to bring the truth of the gospel to bear on our actual lives, the places we truly live. One uh, Puritan writer illustrated the difference between knowing the truth and experiencing the truth in this way. I did this at the first service. I'm going to do it second. I want you to imagine our beloved worship leader turning 35 yesterday, Andrew Del Rio, walking with his youngest son, Ellis. Ellis is four, for those of you who do not know him. Andrew is holding Ellis's hand. They're walking the streets. And Ellis, in that moment, knows that his last name is Del Rio. He knows that he is the son of Andrew. He knows that Andrew loves him and would do anything to keep him safe. He knows that all of Andrew's dealings with him are for his good. He knows it. But, all, but then picture, in that same scene, Andrew picks Ellis up, lifts him up above his head and says, Ellis, I love you. I care about you. You are my everything. That's a little dramatic, but the point is he's, he's, he's affirming his love for him. And then he sets him back on, on the ground and they continue walking. Now, in this scene, imaginary scene, did anything about Ellis fundamentally change? No, he was Andrew's son before being picked up and embraced, and he's Andrew's son after being picked up and embraced. But here's what would have changed. Ellis's awareness of and enjoyment of his status as Andrew's son. And that, in a word, is what Paul is promising us in Galatians chapter 4. Not just that we become children of God, but that in our hearts we feel the power of God's love, and we know God as Father. It's not the status that's on, just on offer here. It's the enjoyment of the status. That is the experience. Point two, what is this experience like? Well, the text gives us three interesting clues, and the first is that this experience that the Spirit makes possible is passionate. It's a passionate experience. Where am I getting that? Well, that word in verse 5, I think, verse 6, uh, the Spirit calls out. That's a pretty weak translation in the NIV. Uh, that word is an instance of, uh, uh, the, of the, I don't know what you call it, the, the, and it's an onomatopoeia. Are you familiar with that term? It's when a word looks like the sound it makes, you know, yawn or boom. It's an onomatopoeia. Well, this word is an onomatopoeia because it looks like the sound a raven makes when it cries. It's loud. It's intense. It's the same word that Peter uses in Matthew's gospel when he tries to walk on water after Jesus and starts drowning. Save me, he cries out. Well, with that level of intensity, Paul pictures the Spirit of God crying out from our hearts, Abba, Father. It's passionate. Second, it's prayerful. And by that I mean the spirit, this experience, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And it doesn't make you emotional as a kind of end in itself. What's pictured here is a fluency and dexterity in our lives in prayer. It's when we're talking to God that we find the spirit surging in our hearts. So we know that we're experiencing the spirit of God in this way, not when we're watching 
a, a random movie and start weeping, as wonderful as that might be. It's when we are engaging with God in prayer or in worship, and we find ourselves able to articulate with emotional effect how much God means to us, what God has done for us. It's a fluency in prayer. And then finally, this spirit, the experience of the spirit in this way, it has a persuasive element. It settles our deepest convictions about who God is and what God has done. And I'm getting that from that word, Abba. Some of you probably know that word is an Aramaic word, which was the language that Jesus spoke. And the word Abba is taken directly from Jesus' lips. It's the word that Jesus used to describe his heavenly father, our heavenly father. Uh, Abba was a word that children use in reference to their father. Sometimes young children, sometimes adult children. But it is a word that connotates both reverence but affection. An awkward English translation would be dearest father. And what I want to say, the reason why I find that significant is because, well, look, just imagine, some of you know this very well, a six-month-old crying out for, to their parents for milk or some bodily necessity. In that instance, the child, and for good reason, does not try to persuade or bargain or make an argument as to why their parent should meet their basic needs. No, children cry out with the instinctive expectation that their parents are going to care for them. Well, when the Spirit of God is operating in your life, as Paul pictures it here, we are convinced. It's almost like an instinct that God and God's dealings with us are for our good. Like I said earlier, we're not having to claim. We're not having to do mental jujitsu to realize that we are indeed beloved. In our hearts, we know that we know that we know that we are beloved by God and that all of God's dealings with us are for our good. Okay, what is this experience? It's an experience of our status as God's children. What is it like? Well, it's passionate, it's prayerful, and finally, it is persuasive. It settles convictions. Third and final point, how do we get it? How do we get this kind of experience if it is indeed as helpful as I'm trying to make it seem? Well, the answer is subtle, but it's staring right at us. It's the beginning of verse 6. Because we are sons, Paul says, because of Jesus and our adoption into God's family, God sent the Spirit into our hearts. There is a connection, in other words, between verses 4 and 5, which describes Jesus and his exterior work, and verse 6, which describes the Spirit and the Spirit's internal work. You cannot separate who Jesus is and what Jesus did and who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does. I'll put it like this. The Spirit comes to us because of Jesus. The Spirit also comes to us through Jesus. And what that means quite practically, and that's the point I'm trying to make, a practical point, not a theological one. The practical point is that you experience the Spirit by meditating upon Jesus, his words, his work, his love for you. You experience the Spirit by meditating, but savoring, seeing Jesus Christ. And therefore, the way into the spiritual experience that I've been describing is not a generic prayer. God, fill me with your love. 
there are certainly worst ways to pray. But uh, you know that line? It's actually a bright eyes song. I know, very cliche. But it's, uh, I'd rather be working for a paycheck than waiting to win the lottery. I think there's something to be said there for our spiritual life. We do not wait around for the lottery of catalytic mystical experiences. No, God's given us more than that. God's given us a means of working for a paycheck. And what I want to say is if you want to become more familiar with the Spirit of God, if you want the Spirit to call out in your heart, Abba, Father, you don't just sit back and wait for God to zap you like a benevolent Palpatine. No, you take the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of God's word, and you turn it into prayer. You start learning the language of your own soul and the Bible. And you develop a fluency and an ease in prayer. When you do that consistently, you will start to experience the prayerful, passionate, persuasive work of the Spirit. I promise you. Friends, this is there for you. So let's go for it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.